This sermon was recorded at Highway Palo Alto in Palo Alto, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Gong Hei Fat Choi. You guys all know Cantonese, right? If not, Xinian Kwai Le. Happy Chinese New Year, 2020. It's going to be a good year. It's the year of the rat. And so it is, uh, symbolizes a new day and uh, wealth. And uh, those things will come to you as long as you don't wash clothes, use scissors, or sweep floors on, on January 25th because that would be bad luck. And so, but anyway, we hope that you have a great new year. We celebrate with those. This is a huge celebration uh, within our communities, and so we wanted to recognize that. Uh, just one more thing before we get to the message today. Uh, this is an announcement about parking. And so if you've been around um, Highway here for a while, you know that we at one point had a, uh, a homeless encampment for many years that was back in our, in our parking lot. And so, and then we remodeled and redid the, uh, the, the parking lot, but we have wanted to in some way contribute um, uh, what we have toward this issue of homelessness within our communities. And last Monday night, the Palo Alto City Council unanimously voted to approve the Safe Parking Pilot Program, which allows churches to host four vehicle dwellers uh, in their parking lot for a three-month trial period. Um, and this, this allows those who participate in it to have their car here from 7 p.m. at night until 7 a.m. in the morning. And so <clears throat> it doesn't interfere with, uh, with some of the, the programming and the things that go on here, but provides a safe place for them to be. Um, this also includes management. And so there will be caseworkers that work with the folks um, who park their cars here. Um, and so that'll be an ongoing thing to connect them with uh, city services and so forth. And so we're grateful that the program was approved. It was a bit of a surprise that it was, um, but we're excited to be one of the first congregations that has signed up to participate. And so we'll keep you updated as, as details emerge. Um, and there will, there will be some meetings that we'll have with some of the neighbors in order to make sure that we're all on the same page with this. But uh, we're thankful for this opportunity and we'll see how it goes. All right, praise the Lord. Now this morning we continue a message series uh, looking through the lens of 1 John uh, to identify the marks of an authentic Christian. And 1 John is, is it's like an inventory uh, that a follower of Christ can take uh, to ensure that we have complete confidence in our identity in Christ. And so Jesus is the measure of authenticity. Jesus is the really real. And so this is really about him and how our lives are formed in his life. Thus far, we've, we've seen that the first mark is transformation. And so a person who, uh, an authentic Christian, has, has gone through some process, or at least the process of transformation has begun. Uh, it, our beliefs and behavior and relationships change as they are aligned with Christ's life and ministry. Um, last week, David went deeper into the social transformation. Uh, that is, walking in light it means to walk in love toward our brothers and sisters. This morning, we'll look at the mark of discernment, the practice of distinguishing between truth and error, right and wrong, uh, what is of Christ and what is antichrist. And in 1 John, we'll see two convictions necessary for spiritual discernment, as well as two practices that guide the process. Now, it was back in the mid-1930s 
that the nation Germany was prepared to move on uh, from the humiliation of World War I. And they had a new leader, and his name was Adolf Hitler. And uh, while multitudes enthusiastically followed uh, this racist, genocidal maniac, as he turned out to be, there was a young professor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, who uh, discerned another path. As Hitler revved up the Third Reich, which eventually was responsible for 20 million battlefield deaths and uh, the murder of 6 million Jews, Bonhoeffer refused to support the state church. The state church had been co-opted by the Third Reich, and essentially the Messiah had become Adolf Hitler. And so he formed what was called the Confessing Church. Uh, it was an unsanctioned underground communities that stood in opposition to the spirit of the age. Bonhoeffer defended Germany's Jews openly, and he got involved eventually in a plot to assassinate Hitler, which led to his arrest and execution. Just three weeks before the Allies liberated those camps, um, Bonhoeffer was, was hung. Now, despite the pressure to conform, how did Bonhoeffer discern the truth? and then act accordingly. What was guiding him in this? Um, and, and how did he choose a path that involved assassinating a sitting leader? Um, Bonhoeffer was one who was a prayerful person, and he had very strong convictions, and within that, he felt very convicted on the path that he decided to follow. We're gonna look at these two convictions and two practices this morning. And since the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, these have been the convictions and practices of discerning believers throughout the ages. But before we get to those, let's define some terms. First of all, what is, it, what is discernment? What does it mean to be discerning? Well, the truth is that God is always speaking, and this is a process of discerning what he is saying to us and seeking to understand what he has for us. Um, and then how do we live into the truth uh, that he is sharing with us? The ability to think with discernment, it's, it's synonymous with thinking biblically. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, it says, examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Discernment doesn't focus so much on life decisions. And so when we talk about discernment this morning, we're not, really, we're not gonna be talking about, well, what career should I choose? What school should I attend? What, which person should I marry? Those decisions will come out of a process. And this morning, we're going to see that the process is the point. And if the process is, is, is followed, I mean, if the process is a real one, then the decisions, they tend to take care of themselves. When the process is right, the decisions take care of themselves. All right, so that's discernment. Now this Christ or Antichrist. Uh, at the core of biblical discernment is discriminating between Christ and Antichrist. And the question is, is something, is it of Christ or is it anti, is it against, or is it actually in place of him? And many believe that Hitler was the Antichrist, that he was the embodiment of, of resistance to God, and that this was a, you know, a harbinger of the end of all days was coming because now this Antichrist had appeared. Um, Christ's personal opponent, opponent before the consummation of the kingdom. There have been different individuals who've been identified as this Antichrist um, throughout the ages. But Antichrist is really is not so much a person, right, uh, as it is a principle. 
And that principle is that Antichrist is in opposition to God, and in every generation it's reincarnated. It's in incarnated anew in that generation. Now John speaks of this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and following. He says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now this is not world cosmos in the sense of God created the world and then saw all that he had created and said, this is good, this is very good. This is the world apart from God, marked by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is, this is kind of a summation of Antichrist. We see these three in other places in scripture. We see it in the Garden of Eden, and we also see it in Jesus's wilderness temptation. In Genesis chapter three, verse 16, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, right? So God had said, here, I've provided for you. You're welcome to eat all of these things. But yet she says, you know what? But I still want that. That's the lust of, that's the lust of the flesh. And then saw that it was pleasing to the eye. And so she's attracted to it, she wanted it, uh, enough to, to disobey a direct uh, instruction that she got. And so that's the, that's the lust of the eyes. And then saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. This is the pride of life. And so we can be like God, knowing good and evil. And so she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and, and he ate it. And then in Jesus's temptation, we see the same three. Uh, the devil dared Jesus to turn stones into bread, right? And so 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Jesus is hungry. Why don't you use your power in order to serve yourself? That's the lust of the flesh. And then Satan said, why don't you throw yourself down from the highest point of the temple? And the angels certainly will come and save you and so forth. That's really the pride of life. I am so special. I'm going to test God now with what I'm going to do just so that just so it can be seen uh, that I am in fact special. And he was in fact special, but he would be testing God at that point. Pride of life. And then he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, these could all be yours if you just bow to me. That's the lust of the eyes. And so the lust of the flesh moves God aside and it leads to gluttonous habits, to selfishness with possessions. It leads to being a servant of pleasure, servitude to pleasure. The lust of the eyes leads to covetousness. It sees nothing without wishing to have it, believing that happiness is found in material things. And then in speaking of the pride of life, John uses a vivid Greek term, um, um, which is uh, alizonea. And the ancient Greek moralists, they talked about the alizon, was a person who laid claims to, position, to possessions and achievements that were not theirs in order to exalt themselves. And so in in a Texan term, you know, this is being all hat and no cattle. This is a person who tries to project that they have all of these things, boastfulness and so forth, that's the alizon. And so the pride of life, that leads to competitive spending and compensatory consumption and projecting uh, importance that we don't have. And so the world in this sense, set apart from the good world that God created, uh, it doesn't have a future. John says this is fading away. Um, and so this is the spirit of Antichrist, not the spirit of Christ. Now going on to verse 18 of chapter 2, John says this, he says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And so this is how we know it is the last hour. 
And so the last hour, the last days, the day of the Lord, this is a theme that is deeply woven throughout the text of Scripture, and it is last in the sense that things as they are are passing away, and it will lead to a new thing. And there's a continual conflict between good and evil, between God and not God, and so in every moment and every decision, we're confronted with a choice of either aligning ourselves with God, Christ, or evil forces set against him, Antichrist. The conflict between good and evil, it never stops. And so in a sense, every hour is the last hour. Right? And so that kind of sets the stage. Um, now let's get into the convictions and the practices that help us with discernment. First of all, discernment requires two convictions. And these are convictions about Jesus Christ, and it relates to his incarnation and his resurrection. Um, discernment is framed by the life and ministry of Christ, his entrance into the world, incarnation, and then his exit from the world, his resurrection. And simply, we believe that he came in the flesh and will return in a resurrected body, which is the first fruits of our resurrection. So this is the promise to us that we will experience eternal life as God will raise us from the dead. Jesus is the one who was our pioneer and he was the first fruits uh, from the dead. In 1 John 2.22, it says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ and such a person is antichrist denying the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father and whoever acknowledges uh, the son has the father also. And so the fundamental lie is that Jesus is not the Christ. He's just not who he claimed to be. He's not the Messiah. Uh, in chapter 4, John went on to talk about this further. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, um, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and this is how you recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, the incarnation, is from God but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which we have heard is coming and even now is already in, in the world. And so John was eyewitness to the real humanity and the real deity of the Lord Jesus. And he knew that if, this, if, if these foundational doctrines or teachings were removed, then Christianity came down with it. So this is foundational to the Christian faith. The false teachers pleaded, they said, hey, it may be that we have different ideas than yours about Jesus. I mean, we may not believe that he was truly fully God and fully man in the incarnation, but we believe the same things about God, about God, the Father. But John's response is that that's not possible. That's not a tenable position. No one can deny the Son and still have the Father. It's through Jesus that we know God. It's in Jesus that we approach God. Um, and so uh, it is through him that we are able to come to him because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was his incarnation was necessary for that. And so without a right view of the son, we cannot have a right view of the father, um, which is why the incarnation is just is so important. The incarnation is a point of departure. It is for Christianity from other religions, Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, each of them deny that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us in terms of being fully God and fully human um, as a reflection of the image of God. 
And this not only refutes the Gnostic notion that matter is evil, but it made the atonement possible. Jesus took on human flesh so that he could offer himself and his blood would be shed uh, in order to cover our sin. So the incarnation is so important because through it, Jesus empathized with our weaknesses and our temptations. And so Jesus was a real human being who experienced some of the very things that we experience in this life and yet without sin. And this is the, the hopeful note. This is the, the vision that we have, that as we form our lives into Christ's life, then we too can be discerning. Jesus was never, he never misunderstood a situation. Jesus never went off the, the path. He never followed someone who wasn't true. Jesus was perfectly discerning. And if we are in him, then we have the same potential as well. We probably, we won't get it perfectly, but yet that's where we find it. Uh, the incarnation promises that we can walk in the light um, while living in the flesh, right? And so it's just saying that in this life, in your human frailty, you can discern, make, you can discern different situations. You can see the difference between right and wrong in the path to take um, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Okay? So discernment, it requires, there's these two convictions. One is the incarnation and the other one is about Christ's resurrection. In, in 1 John 2.24, it says, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning, that it remains in you, and if it does, you will also remain in the Son and the Father. And this is what he promised. He promised eternal life. And so it's important to know our future in order to make good choices now. And so the incarnation and the, and the resurrection just sort of create the, the, the field in which we live. This is where we live and move and have our being. And so knowing what the future holds, it creates an accountability and understanding for us in terms of it bears on the decisions that we have to make today. Christ's resurrection and eternal life have implications for our choices. Um, the one now absent will one day be present. The one that's invisible will be seen. So this is a reality that we cling to. The, and this is the message they heard from the beginning. And so stay with it. Uh, the doctrine of the Lord's return, it was a part of apostolic faith and, and teaching from the very beginning. Look at 1 John 2, 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. In verse 29, if you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So the incarnation, resurrection set the boundaries of the reality we live in. Jesus took on humanity in order to save it. By his perfect life, he conquered sin, and through his resurrection, he conquered death. And this is the reality we live in, and this is where discernment begins. Jesus is alive, Jesus will return, and the way that we live in this life matters. There were Gnostics, there were those that had certain philosophies that were in some of the early churches who didn't believe that, that matter did matter. <laughs> matter doesn't matter. Matter is evil. Matter is something to be transcended. And, and through enlightenment, you can emanate to a higher plane. And so you get away from matter. But Jesus' incarnation and resurrection, it says that the body's important. And what we do when we live in the flesh is important. So those are two convictions. Now let's get at two practices, right? So, We've set the boundaries of reality, this is true, about the Lord Jesus, and so now, 
you know, what's, what's the process that we go through in order to discern? Um, living between Advents, God provides the Holy Spirit and scripture to discern truth and error. And so we listen to the Holy Spirit through scripture. And so we employ this anointing, this, this, um, this presence that has come into our lives through the Holy Spirit, and it is the scriptures that guide us. And so we're actually, we're, we're, we're reading scripture and we're reading it through the Holy Spirit in a sense as he guides us and he teaches us. First um, John 2, 19, he says this, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Talking about these false teachers. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. In verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. So I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. And so a part of, of guidance, of discernment, is just discerning things that we already know. There is a truth that is present in us through the Holy Spirit, but we need to listen to it, and we need to have Scripture to open it up for us under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit is our enduring guide. Those who went out reveals that, you know, just because people are members of a church, just because they attend a church, um, you know, doesn't make them Christians any more than, you know, being in a garage will make you a car, right? And so just being here is great. And, but the Lord is the only one who really knows the status of, of all of our, of our hearts. The writer of Hebrews, he spoke about those who had tasted the heavenly gift, and this is the Holy Spirit, who shared in the Holy Spirit and the goodness of the word of God, so they shared in it. The term there is koinonia, they shared with it, and they shared in the powers of the coming age, the teaching of John about what was to come, but then they fell away. And so they tasted but they never swallowed. And so there are folks who become part of church communities because there's a lot of wonderful things that happen in church communities. We try hard to be nice to each other, right? And generous with each other and concerned about another person's healing, right? So, so Christian communities can be very attractive, um, but there are those who might come and taste but never swallow, never swallow the truth. We're not called to be judges of this, the, the Lord is judge of this, but this is what John is talking about. They taste but don't swallow, and as a result, they lack this binding element of the church, which is authentic faith about the incarnation and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and they lack the indwelling spirit. And apparently, uh, these false teachers could not get an audience within the church, and so from other New Testament books, we get the idea that they were looking for a hearing and a following, and they tried to convince people to believe in their teaching and to follow them. And maybe some of them followed them outside of the church, but they left because they could not get the, the level of power, authority, position within the church that they were seeking. And so these were, these were Gnostics, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. Gnosticism was a philosophy that began in the first century and was really full-blown in the second century. And, and Gnostics emanated, they were, they were the enlightened elites. Um, every believer, but every believer has discernment 
through the illumination given by the Spirit. And so in a sense, every believer, follower of Christ is an enlightened elite. It is for everybody, but they thought it was just for a special few. And so John says, uh, because we have this illumination from the Spirit, you already know the truth. We don't need new truth. You need to employ the truth that you already know. Verse 26 of chapter 2. It says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And so John calls them dear children in different places. He had an affinity and a like kind of parental um, relationship, in a sense, with these believers. And so he says, these are the ones who are trying to lead you astray. But as for you, the anointing you received in him remains in you. This was the Holy Spirit upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism, water baptism, is an image of the spirit baptism that takes place when a person chooses to follow after Christ. And so that anointing, he says, it remains in you, and you don't need anyone else to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, then remain in him. And so John is pleading with them, you know, do not leave things that you know because of the influence of some other person or whatever the relationship might be, remain in that truth. So, two convictions and two practices. Besides the anointing of the Holy Spirit and listening to the Spirit, these believers had the Old Testament scriptures uh, to guide them, as well as the writings of the apostles, which eventually became the New Testament. So at this point, I mean, there, was, there were parts of the New Testament that had been written, that had been distributed to different churches. Uh, but in this next section, John makes a claim that it's already scripture. And so God is speaking through the apostles before scripture is complete, right? Um, he is speaking through them to uh, provide a, a channel for his, his truth. And this is the work of the apostles in the first century. In John 4, 4, 1 John 4, 4, it says this, you dear children are from God and you have overcome them, the Antichrist, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, which is a pretty bold statement when you think about it. But he says, we're the ones who are right. We're the ones that you need to listen to. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us, and so very definitive. And so the ones who believe, who actually have a relationship with God, understand that they are to listen to them. And this is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And so the role of scriptures at this point I mean, some of them were just making their own copies of things that John and, and Paul and the other ones wrote. Um, but today we have, we have the scriptures to guide us. Now, you remember the story of um, Jesus's journey? Uh, this is after the resurrection. And um, he was walking with some disappointed disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as he walked and talked with them, he could feel their confusion they hadn't recognized him. Um, they were wondering what had happened to, to this person that they'd followed, probably sharing stories about his life. But Jesus didn't blurt out to them. He didn't say, hey, it's I. Guess what? Here I am. Uh, instead, he took them to the word in order for them to discern it. 
And so they talked through the scriptures. And they talked about that experience later as, you know, did not, you know, our hearts burn within us. And so there was this ministry of the scriptures, of the spirit, in order to guide them. And then when Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it, their eyes were opened and they saw who he was. And when we listen to the Holy Spirit, as we read scripture, through reading scripture, well, then we know too. We know too. And so the two practices are listening to the Spirit of God and, and continually reading consistently uh, the, the Word of God. So, John says that a mark of an authentic Christian is discernment. And discernment is hearing a deeper sound beneath the noise of ordinary life to gain a vision of how things hang together in our lives and in the world. And discernment, it's based on the truth that God is, is always talking to us. God is always, in some sense, revealing himself to us in different ways uh, and at different times. The books that we read, the nature that we enjoy, the people we meet, and the events we experience contain within themselves signs of God's presence and guidance. And as we, as we dwell with the Spirit, and as we read the scriptures and reflect on them, then we're able to interpret what God is saying to us in different means. The incarnation and resurrection provide the foundation for the Holy Spirit and scripture to help us discern what God is saying. And so it's rooted in a spiritual practice, but you know, with, a, with a message like discernment, um, you know, I think the hope that everybody has at some point with something like this is like, oh, okay, so you're gonna give me a process or you're gonna, you're gonna give me three tips on how to make a good decision about career or relationships or uh, whatever the case may be. But it isn't, it isn't like that. Uh, it's, 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 it's a, it comes from a regular discipline of listening to a still small voice within us that's beneath the whirlwind. It's a prayerful practice of reading the subtle signs uh, of, of daily life. And we will not see it, we will not discern it unless we're in a posture to do that. So discernment is rooted in the core spiritual practices of Bible study and prayer, but it's also aided by secondary practices uh, like fasting or, or silence. And so these can quicken our attention and our spirits and tune us up for us to, to see and to hear and to experience things um, through some of these disciplines that can open up the spirit in our lives. Um, I can see no other path to discernment than a life that's committed to, to prayer and, and deep reflection. I mean, where we are seeking a deep communion with the spirit of God. That is what gives us the ability to discern. And we develop an inner sensitivity, enabling us to distinguish between what is of Christ and what is not. And then we act accordingly. And then important decisions, career choices, relationship choices, services, you know, opportunities that come our way. Our decisions on that flow out of our conviction of what is true and, and as we practice the presence of God. And we make decisions about these things and they flow out of those two convictions and those two practices. Now there's a freedom with this. And going back to the illustration of, um, of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? It's like, well, as he discerned it, he thought that what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do was to 
uh, remove Hitler. He was a part of an assassination plot. It's like, well, good grief. Was that the right thing to do? You know what? I, this, is, this is the way that the Spirit was working in his life. We know that Bonhoeffer had these convictions, and we know that he was a man of, of God, and we knew that he listened to the Spirit. And so this is the way the Spirit led him. Back during the Civil Rights Movement, the same would be true of Martin Luther King. I mean, Martin Luther King was involved in, in resisting um, the endemic injustice that was true within our country. And so there was this, you know, this civil disobedience, right? And so well, what does scripture say about authority? What does it say about, you know, uh, the leaders that we pray for and so forth? But it's through discernment that we hear what God is calling us to do. And it lifts us up out of and helps us to understand passages like those. I don't know what the Lord might be leading you to do, but uh, if your thinking is off about the real humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his real deity reflected in incarnation and resurrection, or if you're not spending any time where you're listening, and I mean, not just reading the Bible, but actually really listening to it and listening to the Spirit and seeking for him to fill you and to guide you, um, well, without those things, you will, not, you will not be discerning. You will not be able to discern what the Lord has for you, whatever it might be. And uh, the Lord's got something different for all of us, but this applies to all the different options and different opportunities that we have in life. Now, when we celebrate communion, uh, we celebrate the means by which we have this discernment, this relationship with God. The incarnation, the Lord Jesus, his real humanity, he died for our sins. And his blood covered our sin. And so now God looks through that and he sees us as positionally perfect in him. That's how a holy God has a relationship with us. And so as we come to the table this morning, uh, we come with, with hearts of thanks that the Lord Jesus has done everything that is necessary for life and for godliness. He has provided a way for us not to walk in darkness in this life, but to walk in light as we walk with him. Let me pray for us and then invite you to come up and take communion. Father in heaven, we're, we're so grateful for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're thankful that you've not just left us in the dark, but that you have turned on lights. And there's a way for us to walk. There's the, the, the walking in the light that was uh, perfectly the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we look to him and we form our lives in him, then, Father, we walk <clears throat> in the light as well. And, Father, as we walk in the light, that light shines on the path. It helps us to understand what it is you want us to do and discern the direction that you call for us to go. So, Father, we, we're grateful for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And it's him that we worship this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.